As we come to God's Word, I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. This is uh, Elisha and the Bears take two, because last Sunday we had a blessed time hearing from uh, truly all over the place, um, from right here in Michigan to Alaska to Haiti. And so um, in the interest of time and focus, of that mission celebration Sunday, it seemed most prudent to push this story back, but I didn't want to skip it. Um, A special thanks to Terry Packard, because this is the story of Elisha and the Bears, and Terry actually wore a theme shirt for the day. His t-shirt says, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, except for bears. Bears will kill you. And that is the peculiar story that we find in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. So as we come before God's Word, as we invite God's Holy Spirit to open the Word to us, and as we bring our minds and our hearts to meditate upon the Word together, let's pray. God, you have spoken through your prophets of long ago, and we know this because we read it in your Word. Lord, you spoke through your Son, Jesus Christ, when he walked upon this earth, and we know this because of your word. Lord, you promised us that no matter what happens on this earth, the end of the story is good when you redeem all things. And we know this because of your word. But Lord, it is not the ink on paper that we yearn after. It is your word in our hearts. And for this, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit. So speak, Lord, by your Holy Spirit's power and presence, that we may wrestle with your word, that we may engage it with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and with all of our strength. Lord, this we pray to you. Amen. 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some youths came out of the town and jeered at him. Go on up, you bald head, they said. Go on up, you bald head. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. And he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Although that might seem almost a little bit counterintuitive to give thanks to the Lord for this strange story. I can't guess all of your reactions, but over the last few weeks, and really over the last few months, because I've been waiting for this story, um, I can tell you a few reactions that I have heard when this text has been read, when people have engaged, that yes, even this strange story of two bears coming out of the woods and mauling 42 kids is in the Bible. Maybe your initial reaction is quite simply, wow, that was harsh. Or maybe there's a part of you that that you read this and you think about what was said and done versus what happened, and you think, that was so overkill. I mean, doesn't this seem over the top? Maybe on a more deeper note, This story seems to conflict with our idea of how God interacts with the world, how God interacts with people. And you think, wait a second, I thought thought God was full of mercy and grace. 
I thought God loved people. And this story seems to be lacking in love. Maybe because it's specifically youths and not actually children as much as uh, young marriage-age adults, which are young teenagers in this time and day. But maybe part of you is still thinking, these are young people. I know from Scripture that Jesus loves children. Because in Matthew 19, 14, Jesus said, Do not hinder the children. Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Maybe, because of the insult being baldhead, you're wondering, who put Pastor Stephen up to this? You start going through, who's serving as elder right now? And then you remember, ah, right now, Mark Nordheis is on the elder board. Maybe he put it up to him. Or maybe following the fair week, you think, wow, Pastor Stephen spent a lot of time with Wayne Larman, so this story must be on his mind. We're not going to go through the whole list, but thank you, Mark and Wayne, for letting that happen. Maybe it seems uh, a little bit mean. Or maybe you aren't taking the position that what was done was overkill. Maybe something about the story resonates with what was in the news just a few weeks ago with a few youths um, on their phones recording a man drowning. Recording it, not calling for help, not aiding or assisting, but just watching this happen and mocking him while it does happen. Maybe there's something about this story that resonates with you on that level, and you think there's something wrong, horribly wrong with the world that things like this can happen. But of all of these reactions, whether you identify with this was completely right and those kids had it coming to them, or whether this gives you some severe pause on just why this would happen, what all of us have to wrestle with is why is this story in Scripture? Why are these verses in the Bible? Why did this make the cut? What's the point and purpose of having these three verses that describe Elisha calling down a curse upon these young people and having two bears come out of the woods? Why is this in the Bible? And why is it so scary Uh, Some of the hunters in our congregation can can tell you stories about bears and bears being just downright frightening. I know just a few of those stories, and I know also one particular hunter has said once when a cub was near his tree stand, what frightened him most was wondering, where is Mama Bear? That's the really scary part. And to the credit of the King James Version, King James actually includes that it was two she-bears. It's two mama bears that come tearing out of the woods against 42 of the youths. Why is a scary story like this in Scripture? And counterbalance that with, why does this story almost seem comical? I, I don't mean that the outcome was funny, But for some people, as they read it, you get done reading that last verse, and you just kind of, like, guffaw and chuckle and laugh, and you're not really sure what to do with it. There's something about it that seems comical. And the reason for that is because verse 25 is so abrupt. This whole episode happens. Forty-two youths are mauled by bears that come out of the woods. And the conclusion to the story, and he, being Elisha, went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. That's it? No explanation on why this happened. No bigger exposition on why this was justifiable. Just 
this happened, and Elisha just keeps on walking. There's something about that that is just comically offsetting to us. Why, again, include this episode? And why not give it explanation? Why not explain why this was okay for it to happen? And that's why not only this is included in Scripture, but why I always will include texts like these in a sermon series. Not because anyone, youth or bald head, put me up to it, but because we do a disservice as a church to a whole generation of Christians if we skip the passages like this. If we look at this and see that's weird or that's difficult, I'm not sure what to do with that, and we pass right over it. Because then we don't become familiar with all the scope of what's in Scripture. Maybe if you were a young person in the congregation, you follow along and you watch what texts make the cut in a sermon series and which ones don't. And to think if this passage got skipped, it would kind of communicate something. Ooh, we don't know what to do with that, so we pass this right over. The problem with this, the, the, the end game problem of this, is that if we as a church in a congregational setting don't wrestle with texts like these, we might forget that they're even there. And someone who, is an ad, uh, someone who is an antagonist of your faith will be more than happy to point these out for you, will be more than happy to show you some of the grisly parts in Scripture that was not actually an intended pun. But they will be more than happy to point them out to you, and even more so to make you wonder why is this in here, because the burden of responsibility is on us as Christians if, if we uphold the Bible as having authority over our lives, if we tell people that this book, what is contained here, matters to you, then the burden of responsibility is on us to know what to do with even strange texts like 2 Kings 2, 23-25, or maybe some of the harder psalms like Psalm 137, ones that we just don't know what to do with. That's why it has to be included. Because the burden is on us, and we have to have truth in advertising. Last Sunday, when we were planning to uh, preach out of this text, one of the hymns that we sang was, We have a story to tell to the nations. We have a story to tell to the nations. And we have to tell the whole story, not just the parts that we like, not just the parts we're comfortable with, not just the verses that we know what to do with. Because we all have our life verses, right? We know John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he sent his only Son, that he whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We know verses from 2 Corinthians, like, Though outwardly we waste away, inwardly we are renewed day by day. We can quote Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. We can quote these things. But I'm guessing no one has selected as their life verse he turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Probably not a go-to. You probably won't see that on a t-shirt for a mission trip. I would much prefer something like Micah 6.8. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Not two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. It just doesn't fit. And it doesn't fit because sometimes we skip these. But it's in the Bible. As Dr. Bechtel would say over and over again, if it's in the Bible, you have to deal with it. So what do we do with this one? What do we do with this strange story? 
What do we do with something that doesn't necessarily make sense to us? This is where the simplest answer is we need to understand the context of the story. That these three verses, although we read them just separately today, they are not independent. They don't stand alone, but they are woven into the rest of the narrative of Scripture. And you might wonder, how do I learn more about the context of the Bible? And once again, the simple answer is, read the Bible a lot. Read the Bible a lot because you will notice things that keep coming up and you will pick up on things that help you understand how this might be connected to that. Because context matters. Because when the author penned 2 Kings and was writing down which stories were included, when that was happening, an author of any context exists in a time and place. So when these words were written, The author has certain things that assumes that everyone would know. Everyone would know this. Now, we think maybe they could have included maybe just a little bit more on why this was okay, why this happened. But we would do the very same thing. Each of us live in a particular time and context. We live in Michigan where there are not mooses or moosin or moose. We live here. We live in a particular year. It's 2017. We live in the United States. So consider the things that we just naturally assume everyone would know. For instance, let's just try this on, things that I assume everyone here knows. What's the capital of the United States of America? Washington, D.C. What animal is the symbol for the Republican Party? An elephant. Okay, the Democratic Party, donkey, right? These are things that we all just kind of know. But assume that 2,500 years from now, not everyone would know that. In fact, that would be obscure knowledge. If you didn't live here, if you never lived in this country, and if it was over two millennia ago that this happened, you wouldn't necessarily know those things. That would be obscure knowledge. But in our context, sure, everybody knows that. There are some big pieces of context that have been told not just here in 2 Kings chapter 2, but throughout 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings leading us up to this point, and in fact, reaching all the way back to the law. Context are the things that would not be written down because it is assumed that everyone already knows them. And the only way to learn what they would think that we already know is to read Scripture a lot. The big piece of context that anyone would pick up on in this day and age is where this story took place. And that gives us a big clue to who these youths were. Verse 23, from there, Elisha went up to Bethel. City of Bethel. So this is the reverse course of how Elijah left the earth. Elijah, Bethel, Jericho, Jordan, Then Elisha returns, Jordan, Jericho, the healing of the water that Pastor Roger preached on, and now Bethel. Now, Bethel seems like a nice place. After all, in Hebrew, it means house of God, Beth-el. Beth meaning house, El, short for Elohim, God. Beth-lehem, where Jesus was born, is Beth-lehem, which is house of bread, which sounds like a wonderful place to me. But Bethel, you would think, would be a good place, house of God. Except everyone reading this story in the day it was written would know what else was in Bethel. 
And this reaches all the way back to 1 Kings chapter 12. Because Bethel was not just the house of God, Bethel was also the house of the competing prophets who were against, who were against Yahweh and all of his followers. And this goes back to 1 Kings 12 when the kingdom is split and Jeroboam reigns over Israel and the line of David continues to reign over Jerusalem and Judah. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, after seeking the advice of those in his, of those in his council, King Jeroboam made two golden calves, and he said to the people, it's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And one he set up in Bethel, and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin, because the people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Bethel is the site of a completely separate cult religion, in this day and age. This is where Jeroboam's calf, the golden calf, was put up. This is blatant idolatry. This is an invitation for the people to worship a statue of a golden calf made in the image of something on earth and to not worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, to not go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, but to simply go to Bethel because it was easier. And this was done for political purpose. Jeroboam did this to consolidate his power because otherwise the divided kingdom would still be in correspondence with Jerusalem. This was a way to keep all of the people here. And it was a great sin as scripture teaches us. Part of the context of 2 Kings 2 is knowing that in 1 Kings 12, the center of idolatry was set up in Bethel, a golden calf to worship. I can also tell you on a side note that there is a school in California that they named their school cafeteria the Golden Calf. I still think that's a terrific pun. This is the center of idolatry. This is a distraction from worshiping the Lord. And this is a site where there are different prophets who prophesy not in the name of the Lord, even if they think they do, but they prophesy on behalf of the golden calf. This is what is happening in Bethel. And so there would be a shrine, and there would be, as was the custom of the pagan day, to put up shrines in the high places, to set up places to offer incense, to worship on altars in the mountains and the hills. This is why in Psalm 121, the opening line, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes in the name of the Lord. Is such a contrast to the day and age where you put your altars in the high places so that you could look up to them. But instead, we're reframed to not look up to handmade things on high places and mountains, but to look to the Lord and the Lord alone. This is Bethel. And there's a school of faithful prophets But this is the center of idolatry for Israel. This also means that for generations, for decade upon decade, these people have been poisoned against the prophets of the Lord because the prophets of the Lord have spoken against Bethel. They've spoken against the golden calf. They've spoken against this whole separate religion that Jeroboam set up in 1 Kings chapter 12. This has been railed against by the prophets. And so when a prophet of the Lord does come through Bethel, they are in hostile territory. They are in hostile territory, even in the city called the house of God. 
It's generational prejudice that's been passed down. And that means that these youths, this is not a one-time incident. This is not just a, a random mocking of a bald person. They know who Elisha is. They know the company of prophets that he is with, and they also know because they've been brought up to worship a completely different set of prophets, to listen to them, to worship this golden calf. They've been poisoned against these prophets of the Lord. And so for this group of youths, these are young men. Commentators would say that these are people who know right from wrong. These are young people, but not children which might be a helpful detail to know if you ever have to explain why this story is in the Bible to someone. It's not a one-time incident. This is the job of young people. They, as the commentator Matthew Henry would say, they crow as their parents have taught them to crow, and they crow against the prophets of the Lord. And to look at what happens and what is being said and what's going on, Elisha is the new prophet of of the Lord, and he's defending his honor in a certain sense because the people go against him, and for him to be mocked by these youths, he is a person of high standing. This is forbidden. You don't mock someone of higher power and authority than you, except these young people don't believe that Elisha has any power. They mock him for being bald, which is a mild insult, but it's, it's definitely impolite. But it's not the blast straw. It's not that Elisha was so offended at his baldness that he called down a curse upon them. No, what's really at play here goes deeper than that. They say to him, go on up. Go on up, you bald head. What does that mean? One school of thought is that Elijah has just gone up The chariots of fire came through and Elijah was taken up into heaven. He has left this earth. And if this story has spread throughout Bethel, the suggestion of the youths is that now Elisha also should go on up, as in get out of here, leave this earth. Go on up, you bald head. Kind of like saying, get out of here, ugly. Your predecessor left, you can leave too. Get out of here. But perhaps even more so, The reminder is that the shrines are set up in the high places. The places of idolatry worship are in the high places. Go on up, you bald head. Go on up. Go on up, not to Jerusalem, because no matter what the elevation is, when you go to Jerusalem, you're always going up. If you notice that, when you read the Old Testament, no matter what direction you're in, no matter what the elevation, it's always go on up to Jerusalem, go up to Jerusalem, up to the city of the Lord. But for these youths who worship the golden calf, to say to, to, say to Elisha, go on up, is to be pointing him towards the shrines to the golden calf, to point him to those places, go on up to one of those. Why don't you worship our God, the real God, the golden calf that King Jeroboam set up. This is a complete different thing than just being mocked for being bald. This is telling a prophet of the Lord to commit idolatry, to break at least two of the Ten Commandments, that you shall have no other gods before me and that you shall not make for yourself a graven image. This is at least two of them. Worship something else. Worship someone else. Pick a different god. Worship an idol. 
This is an invitation to the prophet of the Lord for direct infidelity away from serving the Lord himself. And so Elisha looks at them, and he calls down a curse upon them in the name of the Lord. Now, he doesn't specify the curse. This is left up to the sovereignty of God. And if you read through Leviticus, there are several texts about what kind of curses you can and cannot do. For instance, Leviticus 20, verse 9 says, Anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death because they have cursed their father or mother. Their blood will be on their own head. This is something interesting, too. We don't really think much about curses. We think about cursing. There's words that we shouldn't say. There's naughty words. But we don't really think about curses, generational curses, getting a blessing or a curse from your parents, having any kind of effect other than words spoken. But if you were cursed, you could not be blessed. You could not receive inheritance if you were cursed. Curses are very real in the Old Testament. And I can tell you that sometimes my father and I wondered if, uh, if curses were real and how much effect they even had today. I won't tell you exactly what we tried to call down curses on people for, but I can tell you why. It's when people would dump garbage in our fields, when someone would throw a washer or a dryer into one of our irrigation ditches because they needed to get rid of it, or when they'd throw shingles in one of our farm driveways, or throw beer bottles into our cornfields. Whenever we picked those things up, we always called down a curse upon the person who did it. And I won't tell you what we exactly cursed, but I can tell you that if they had any effect, there's a lot of people who didn't make it to the bathroom in time. (laughs) But what we know better is that we're also told, even though this is very real in the Old Testament, we are told in Romans to bless and do not curse. We've been shown a different way, a better way. In Romans 12, 14, Paul says, Bless those who persecute, bless and do not curse. And he's picking this up from Jesus, right from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. The same kind of exposition is given in 1 Corinthians 4, 12. And in James, we're told that you cannot bless and curse with the same mouth. We are only to be those who bless, but curses are still very real. But we've been steered away from that by Jesus. The last detail about Elijah, Elisha, and the bears is that we might, again, think that it seems overkill. Too much, right? And besides, Elisha's just being made fun of. No, he's being taught, he's being told to go up and commit idolatry. And this cannot be, and he has to defend his dignity and honor as a prophet. But also, consider again that he's in Bethel, where there's a competing school of prophets, and he is in hostile territory. Hostile territory. And how many youths are mauled by bears? 42. That means there's at least 42 people, probably more. If you knew that you were in a hostile city that you were not welcome in, and you were surrounded by 42 people, would you feel safe? Guessing not. Elisha actually is in danger by these people. Go on up. In some way, they are threatening him. And so when he calls down a curse upon them, they probably are very curious to see what will actually happen. But he is in danger, certainly in danger of committing idolatry, but also just in physical danger, being surrounded by this huge group of young people that are threatening him. 
the story is still tragic. And it's also very sad. And it seems meaningless, especially these youth, they didn't know any better. They knew right from wrong, but they didn't know better because they had never been taught better. They had been taught that these prophets are bad and the golden calf worshiping is good. They followed in the example of their parents, generation after generation after generation. And so in a certain sense, we sympathize for them because they didn't stand a chance. But the only other piece that we have to wonder about, and this is maybe a piece that makes us uncomfortable, is from 2 Chronicles 36, which is the fall of Jerusalem. This is, this is the end of the kingdom before the exile takes place. And in that description in 2 Chronicles, we are told in 2 Chronicles 36, 16, but they, being the people of God, they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. Looking back now, people would see this story as one more warning sign and reminder of a time when we scoffed the Lord's prophets, when God tried to intervene, when God tried to call us back, and we scoffed at the prophets. We didn't take them seriously. We didn't worry about them. And then the fall of Jerusalem happened. We don't like this idea of God necessarily warning us about anything because maybe sometimes we don't like the idea of God doing something mean or harsh that he would have to warn us about in the first place. But as Pastor Roger preached a few weeks ago, we can't blame fire for being hot. And you don't get to blame God for being God. Leviticus 26.22, once again, an early book of the law, says, If you remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your afflictions seven times over as your sins deserve. I will send wild animals against you, and they will rob you of your children. This is a predictable pattern, reading from Genesis up to 2 Kings, that bad things happened at this point, but it's still not good. It is a certain type of warning. And I don't think we can be so cavalier as to assume that everything is a warning. Because often we're just looking for ways to blame problems on other people. Because the youth that mocked the Lord's prophet is always someone else. We can never imagine it being us. But this type of story, this reinforces the consistency of Scripture. That this strange story happens and that it's not a surprise to anyone who read it back in its day. In fact, it would be a little lesson. Frightening, yes, and difficult to deal with. But this is more than just a bald man who is offended. This is about who you worship. This is about your religion. This is about your faith, if you worship the Lord or if you worship the golden calf. We don't have such obvious idolatry in our day and age, but we do have idols, and we do have other gods that we worship. We should be careful and mindful. Not that I think bears are going to come out of the woods, but there is still an ethic of Scripture that calls us towards singular faithfulness and devotion to God. And last of all, let's just remember the scope of Scripture in its wholeness and entirety. This is in the Bible. It maybe doesn't fit our mold of what should be in the Bible, but it is there nonetheless, and it has to be dealt with and understood. And we should know what's in it, and at least some inkling of how to understand it, rather than have someone who is an antagonist of your faith pointed out for you 
and we come up with nothing. This should be the conversation of the church, to not shy away from the harder stories of Scripture. Because if we can't understand the hard passage in Scripture, we will not understand when trials come our way how to deal with them either. Understanding these words, even the difficult ones, are the same pathway forward to understanding difficult times. Not always with neat answers tied in a bow, but with the entire breadth of Scripture. The Scripture includes strange passages like bears. The Bible is complex. And if we are called to worship God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that means it's going to take all of us. It takes every single part of us. All of our wrestling has to happen there with the Lord. That means we're going to have confusion and doubt as much as we'll have assurance and comfort. That means even when we have joy and happiness and gladness and celebration, we'll also have anger and frustration. God deals with all of these things, and Scripture is broad and vast, both in its adventures and in its lessons. When we come to the table, we do the same thing. We remember the breadth by which Scripture teaches us to come to this table. And there's probably a comfort and a challenge for each and every one of us. Whatever we bring in ourself to this table, the Lord has a challenge and an admonition and an encouragement for us. For instance, when we come to this table, maybe we think it's uh, something that you can just come to no matter what. There's no sense of reverence. It's just coming on up for a snack. But yet we're told in, First Corinth- in Second Corinthians, do not eat this meal in an unworthy manner or you will eat and drink judgment upon yourself. That's another sermon in itself. 